Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Macworld Magazine, January 1987. The Making of the Macintosh 2, by Stephen Levy. A backstage look at the creation of the new machine and the unsung heroes who designed it. Before embarking on a column about the designers of the Macintosh 2, I first had to wrestle with an ominous question. Was this a machine with sufficient character to justify a curiosity about its originators? I must confess that my first glimpse of the machine was disorienting and slightly depressing. Its massive footprint made me marvel that none of its numerous code names was Bigfoot. To one accustomed to the compact, feisty Macintosh box, the Open Mac seemed something cooked up by the geometry police from IBM land. Thankfully, that disquieting first impression soon dissipated. The turning point came when I noticed something in the upper left corner of the super crisp black and white display. The little Apple icon that pulls down the desk accessories faithfully replicates the blazing colors, colors of Apple Computer's logo. The purity and resolution of the color is something I've never seen before in a display, and it's both a technical tour de force and a promise of the creative power within the machine. The message was clear. With the Mac 2, we're not in Kansas anymore. Not being in Kansas anymore is what the Macintosh is all about. With this reassurance, I could proceed with a clear conscience to relate the inside story of the Macintosh 2. Let us go back to what some people refer to as the dark days of Macintosh. It is early 1985, and after a successful launch, the Mac's vital signs are not good. The business market in particular has decided that the limitations of the Mac, particularly its closed architecture, limited storage, and sluggish performance, keep the machine in the realm of Toyland, merely aspiring to be a capitalist tool. The people at Apple were considering various responses to this perception. Most notable was a computer being designed around the powerful Motorola 68020 microprocessor, a project known in-house as Big Mac. Another contender was a powerful personal computer codenamed Jonathan. The Dewey Decimated System the odds seemed slim that the ultimate solution would begin with a diminutive, bearded engineer in his 20s named Mike Dewey. Though respected for his design skills, Dewey had been associated with a number of products that had never reached the marketplace. Things like the Apple Phone, Color Lisa, the Grayscale Mac, the Apple File Server. Students of Apple history, though, will note Dewey's pedigree. He is the same kind of grassroots hacker as his predecessors, Woz, Burl Smith, Andy Hertzfeld. Initially charmed by computers as a 13-year-old in Wisconsin, Dewey was blown away by the Apple II as a teenager and later was a founder of the Madison Apple User Group. His first trip to Silicon Valley was to interview for a job at Hewlett-Packard, but he spent part of the visit dropping in on Apple and setting up an interview there. Guess where he wound up? By early 1985, Dewey was sitting at Apple with his soon-to-be-killed file server. Not one to brood, he was trying to figure out his next project. 
I like more control of my destiny, so I like to propose things, he explains. I wanted to design Apple's next computer. He realized that the equipment he had most recently created, a hardware server based on the same 68,000 chip as the Mac, not to be confused with the Apple Share software released by Apple last January, might easily be converted to a computer that could be the next iteration of the Macintosh, regardless of Big Mac. Unlike the original, this would be an open architecture machine that the user could modify, yet it would maintain software compatibility. As Dewey put it in a memo, the Macintosh 2 is designed to combine the Macintosh software base with the expandability of an Apple IIe. A suggested code name was Little Big Mac. About the same time, a hardware engineer by the name of Brian Berkeley, who had worked on the analog portion of the original Mac, stuff like video display and power supply, was drafting his own memo. The subject was Future Product Strategy Survival. Berkeley, an athletic mustachioed 30-year-old, thought that the gap between the Mac 512K and the projected Big Mac was, quote, as wide as the Grand Canyon. Something should fill that chasm, he argued. A high-volume computer with more power and a 12-inch display, bigger than the original Mac's 9-inch screen, smaller than the Big Mac's 17-inch monitor. This would be Middle Mac. Obviously, these guys were destined to get together. However, this took some urging, because their only previous contact had been when Berkeley, while testing some equipment near Dewey's cubicle, accidentally sent out radio interference that wiped a whole morning's work from Dewey's computer. But once the two engineers recognized the similarity of their goals, they realized that collaboration was inevitable, and as it turned out, they shared a passion for high-quality consumer electronics. Both of them, for instance, own Sony projection televisions. Making Milwaukee Famous Apple allows its engineers relative freedom, but it was not long before some manager asked about this underground thing that Dewey and Berkeley were supposedly working on. Once explained, the project got a tacit go-ahead. This was around the time that Jean-Louis Gasset arrived at Apple to head the Macintosh division. Eager to produce a successor to the Macintosh, Gasset became an early supporter of what was then called Milwaukee, inspired by a picture of the city's skyline sent to Dewey by his mother. But there was still some light treading to do. With Steve Jobs still at Apple, pockets of the original Macintosh religion were formidable. A primary commandment of that faith was, Thou shalt not open the box. So, in his memos, Dewey avoided the troublesome word, slots. However, the Macintosh's troubles finally caused even Jobs to relax the dogma. One day, Jobs and Apple's chief scientist, Alan Kay, dropped by Dewey's cubicle. Do you think it should have slots? Jobs asked the designer. Yes replied Dewey. Jobs turned to Kay and asked what he thought. Kay agreed. All right, said Jobs, and from then on, Dewey could use the S-word without fear. In fact, a later codename for the machine was Reno, in honor of the slots. Other codenames included Uzi, which was discarded as too militaristic, Bex, 
named after Brian Berkeley's brew of choice, and Paris, in honor of Gasset. Jean-Louis, incidentally, was the person who decided that the machine should have six slots. For the next several months, design proceeded while various Apple people tried to decide what features the computer should have. According to Ron Hochsprung, a systems engineer who joined the project early, there's a big difference between an Apple II and a Cray supercomputer. You have to choose where in the middle you're going to be. Meanwhile, Brian Berkeley's main emphasis was on developing the monitor's breakthrough design, which provides rich color in the same package with stunning monochrome resolution. I knew it would take no less than a complete, major revolutionary step in display technology, he says. Considering that the designers are videophiles, it was no surprise that Sony was chosen to manufacture the monitors. But few would guess that the monitor plans were so integrated into the machine design that until fairly late in the process, the designers placed the computer's power supply inside the monitor. When they finally discarded that idea, the already bulky main component of the machine, which contains the main circuitry, the microprocessor, the slots, and room for two floppy drives and a hard disk, had to be enlarged by four more inches. Then came the bus wars. There were several hot contenders. For a variety of technical reasons, Ron Hochsprung spearheaded a movement to go with an architecture called Newbus, which provides a way of mixing and matching cards in the slots that is consistent with the Macintosh's renowned ease of use. The biggest step, though, came in the autumn of 1985, when it was clear that the computer was more than a year from completion. By that time, the marketplace would be demanding considerably more power from its computers, and the IBM world would be ready with units built around the mighty 8386 microprocessor. The logical step was to switch to the lusty 32-bit 68020. But this additional power forced Apple to reposition the new machine in its plans. In any case, a decision was imperative, and Jean-Louis Gasset was key in making that decision. His choice was Little Big Mac. Gasset says that one factor was the machine's projected compatibility with the current Macintosh software base. Ultimately, he says, it was a question of people. I felt that Mike Dewey was capable of doing it. Within a matter of weeks, Apple backburnered Big Mac, which was moot once its designer joined Steve Jobs to form a new company called Next, and postponed, and later killed, Jonathan. Apple placed its chips on the Macintosh 2. Up from the Skunk Works By then, things were very busy on the Mac 2 project. Whereas the hardware engineers working on the machine in the summer of 1985 could describe the project as an obscure background skunk works, by the end of the year, dozens of people were involved. Apple assigned John Medica to be the champion, the one who pulls together all the teams and assumes responsibility for getting the product out the door. It was a role that Medica had filled admirably with the Apple IIe and the Apple IIgs. Unlike the original Macintosh project, which carried on in relative isolation until fairly late in the process, the Macintosh II drew wide participation from within Apple. It was the largest product we've ever done at Apple Computer, says Gasset. 
For instance, the new sound capabilities were provided in part by engineers from research and development, and a crew of software wizards came on to handle the tricky task of empowering the machine and maintaining compatibility with the Macintosh software base. A fellow named David Fung, who worked on the beefed-up ROM chips, was nicknamed Fungfeld as a tribute to Andy Hertzfeld, the man behind the original Macintosh ROM. A 23-year-old named Ernie Biernink brilliantly recrafted the quick-draw graphics routines to accommodate color. T-shirts were printed bearing the various code names. Parties held, deadlines set, sometimes met. Optimists believed that the machine could be finished by November 1986. Realists hoped for a January 1987 completion. No one was really shocked when the announcement date was pushed back to March. By that point, everyone agreed that the Macintosh 2 was, in computer parlance, a big win, and Mike Dewey would finally see one of his products shipped. A Machine for the Rest of Them A few weeks before the announcement date, Dewey and Berkeley have a meal at a falafel joint near Apple headquarters in Cupertino. Since I'm going along for lunch, they leave Dewey's Porsche behind, driving instead in Berkeley's souped-up Mercedes. While wolfing down Bulgarian beef pitas, they give a designer's eye view of the philosophical difference between the original Macintosh and the Macintosh 2. Although he emphasizes that the original Macintosh was great, Dewey thinks that its prescriptive attitude, the religion that decreed no cursor keys and a closed box, was overly indulgent. Steve Jobs thought that he was right and didn't care what the market wanted. It's like he thought everyone wanted to buy a size 9 shoe. The Mac 2 is specifically a market-driven machine, rather than what we wanted for ourselves, continues Dewey. My job as an engineer is to take all the market needs and make the best computer. It's sort of like musicians. If they make music only to satisfy their own needs, they might lose their audience. I'm proud to bring together a machine that can do the Mac software base and also be so powerful in doing other things. Berkeley concurs. While the original Mac crews said that they built a machine for themselves, he says, I built this for everybody else, and myself, too. So that's how it happened. A proposed product that kept the faith with its predecessor, survived internal competition, and became the state-of-the-art Apple computer. True, the story lacks the romance of the original Macintosh team, which flew the pirate flag and hijacked the personal computer world into believing in a new vision. Yet it is encouraging that Apple has acted on its boast that, to stay alive, it would raise the technological ante of the personal computer poker game. And it is downright inspiring that Apple has once again relied on unheralded young engineers to develop this project. Like the Macintosh 2 itself, the story is less conventional and more impressive than it seems at first glance. Macintosh 2 is for those who saw the promise of Macintosh, who wanted speed, color, modularity, 
and better sound. Now, let me show you what's inside. Like the SE, the Macintosh 2 is based on the Motorola 68000 family of processors, the family which gives Macintosh the flexibility to improve upon itself and grow, and which assures a smooth upgrade path for the future. The heart of Macintosh 2 log logic board is the 16 megahertz 68020 microprocessor. It also features a 68881 or floating point processor, which allows for even faster calculations in financial, statistical, and engineering applications. There is also a socket on the board for an optional 68851 or PMMU, a processor in charge of memory management and protection, a requirement for running multitasking operating systems. Like Macintosh SE and Macintosh Plus, Macintosh 2 comes standard with one megabyte of RAM. On Macintosh 2, it's expandable to eight megabytes. And the larger 256K byte ROM in Macintosh 2 means that the system software has been upgraded to meet the new capabilities of the microprocessor by providing higher quality sound and graphics and expansion. Like the new Macintosh SE, Macintosh 2 has several options for built-in disks. The standard design has one floppy drive with room for a second one, and also room for a built-in hard disk drive with either 20, 40, or 80 megabytes of storage, or any other five and a quarter SCSI drive. But what are the options for more power and expandability. To accommodate that need, Macintosh 2 has six slots, featuring a new bus architecture. We chose new bus because its processor independence and its well-defined protocol allowing multiple processors and intelligent cards. New bus leaves the growth path for Macintosh 2 wide open for new devices to further enhance the capabilities of Macintosh 2 and for future generations of processors. And in true plug-and-play spirit of Macintosh, any card can be inserted in any slot, no deep switches. The system is self-configurable. Other companies are busy working on cards for these slots, but Apple has already developed one, the Macintosh 2 video card. It includes two custom Apple chips, the frame buffer chip and the Brook Tree chip, which includes a palette of 16 million colors. The Apple video card offers 640 by 480 pixels in one, four, or eight bits per pixel. The Macintosh high-resolution color monitor can display these colors with the same clarity as the original black and white display on Macintosh. And the Macintosh high-resolution black and white monitor takes advantage of the custom Apple video card by trading the standard, by taking the standard black and white display to 16 gray scales. The new Macintosh digital sound chip gives us four voice 
and stereo capability for very high-quality synthesized voices and digitized music generation similar to what's available on a compact disc. The Macintosh 2 has a stereo sound port on the back along with the SCSI port, Apple desktop bus ports, and serial ports. Now, I would like to ask Didier Diaz and Ernie Birning to join me for a demonstration. We are first going to look at Microsoft Excel, which may be a familiar application to some of us, and see what Macintosh 2 can do to enhance it. We start with a spreadsheet and create a bar chart from selected material. For some variety, we'd also like to see how the information looks in a pie chart. With the larger screen, it's possible to see more of each of the windows, but it would be nice to look at them all full screen. So we drag the bar chart to one monitor and drag the pie chart to another. With standard multiple screen capability, we can do this with up to six screens at a time. An application software need not be designed for it. This is the job of the system. You may also see that as we modify our numbers and data, the charts quickly recalculate to reflect the changes. We'll copy this chart to use later. Many Apple offices around the country today are receiving this conference by satellite, but two of them are also transmitting back to us through a new communications product that brings together the visual quality of Macintosh applications and the convenience of electronic mail. Desktop Express is a service of Apple, MCR Communications, and Dow Jones that allows any Macintosh document to be shared with any other Macintosh user. We have some mail from our Seattle sales office. They prepared a newsletter about our new products that will be distributed to the dealers in their region and sent us a copy. It was created on PageMaker, but with Desktop Express, you don't have to have PageMaker in order to view or print the document. I believe there is another letter from me, and this one is from our galactic headquarters in Cupertino. It's been an especially busy week for me as our daughter, Marie, was born a Tuesday. One of the breakthroughs on Macintosh 2 is its sound capability. Unlike other computers, the sound generation only takes a minuscule fraction of the CPU power. We can, rather, we can run other functions in parallel. Here, we'll play the old theme song from the Jetsons and read the waveform analysis at the same time.
We can even compete with the movie sound effects. We'd like to show you now a few color images that have been digitized into the Macintosh 2. The Macintosh 2 has been a dream for many of us at Apple. Now it is a dream fulfilled. And it is a strange feeling when reality is better than the dream. Macintosh 2 will open up new applications for discovery just as reaching over the top of a range of mountains can reveal new vistas. We expect to bring the uses of Macintosh into new territories and we will continue to improve the vehicle. Our hope is that our customers and Apple developers will show us the way.